Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we continue on in the exposition of this chapter, this book, we come to our 54th sermon in 1 Corinthians, and we're now looking at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 22. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 22, and I'm going to preach a sermon this morning entitled, Schisms at the Supper. Schisms at the Supper. So 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17, these are the words of God. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. During his earthly ministry, our Lord gave two ordinances to his church. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these were to be observed in the church as a means of God's grace and symbols of the union of Christ with His people and the unity of Christians with one another. However, throughout the history of the church, these gifts of Christ have often been used as wedges to divide the body instead of uniting it. And this is especially true of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was the most controversial issue among the Reformers. They agreed on so much, uh, but when it came to the supper, they had radical differences among themselves, and in reality, their camps, if you will, are oftentimes known by their differences on the supper. The German reformer, Martin Luther, did not even believe that the Swiss reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, was saved because of Zwingli's view of the supper. Uh, John Calvin was pastoring the newly reformed church in Geneva, when he was ousted from his pulpit. Why was he ousted from his pulpit? Because he insisted that those who come to the table must live holy lives in accordance with their profession of faith. And because he insisted upon that, over against the Catholic view that anyone can come to the table, whether they are converted or not, the church ousted him. He went to Strasbourg, where he remained for several years. And what happened? Well, then the church realized uh, they had made a terrible mistake in in ousting Calvin, and they begged him to come back. Calvin came back, uh, got in the pulpit on the Lord's Day. He'd been gone for several years. He opens his Bible to the chapter and the verse that, that was next in his exposition, and he just continued right on in sequential exposition of the Scriptures after a two year hiatus. At one point, Calvin physically threw his body over the elements to prevent the wicked from coming to the table. And he said this, quote, 
These hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it. But you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. Say, was the supper important? Yes, it was. Well, in America, Jonathan Edwards was voted out of his congregation, voted out of the pastorate by 90% of the vote. And you might say, well, what would cause 90% of a well-established congregational church in New England to vote against one of the greatest pastors and theologians that America has ever produced? The issue was that Edwards refused to allow the unconverted and the unregenerate by their own testimony to partake of the Lord's Supper. Edwards says, you must have a testimony of conversion. You must, before you can come to the table, you must be able to say, I know that the Lord Jesus Christ has saved me. Solomon Stoddard, Edwards' grandfather, who pastored the church before him, had had a very awful view of the supper in which he believed that the supper was a means of conversion. And so he would encourage lost people to come to the table and he thought that by partaking of the bread and the wine uh, it would actually aid in their conversion. And Edwards was 100% right in understanding that no, that's not at all what the supper does. And if you partake of the elements, as Paul said, uh, without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are eating and drinking damnation to yourself. Well... Edwards was never invited back to his church. He would go on to minister amongst Native Americans in New England. Well, the Lord's Supper was also a major point of contention amongst the Baptists. There was a group of Baptists in England, uh, which really, they are our ancestors, uh, and and they, they they became known as the strict and particular Baptists, or the strict Baptists, not because of their hardline conservative values. That wasn't why they were called strict Baptists. They were called strict Baptists because they restricted the Lord's Supper to only baptized members of a church. So they would not invite those to the table, even if they were converted, they would not invite them to the table if they had not been scripturally baptized. And the Lord's Supper was so important to them uh, that they became known as strict Baptists will not only have there been arguments over the proper recipients of the supper, there have also been great arguments over the proper elements. We have debates. uh, Should it be grape juice? Should it be wine? On and on, I could go and give you all sorts of historical examples, but my point is simply this, to show you that though Christ instituted the supper as a picture of our unity, it has in reality often been used to further our disunity. You might say, well, that's because we've made too big of a deal out of the Lord's Supper. And perhaps that is true in in some corners of church history in the sense that the Roman Catholic Church had a sacerdotal view of the supper, in which they believed it was, it was a, a, a saving ordinance in the sense that it had the grace in it apart from faith to save the unregenerate. But in our day, it's not the sacerdotal view of Rome that we're most faced with. It's actually just the opposite. 
It's true that a few churches today still view the supper with high regard, uh, but for the most part, churches today are, are, are very little at all care about observance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, just think about how the supper is observed in most churches. It is observed maybe once a quarter, perhaps once a year, perhaps on no regular schedule at all. I've encountered churches that they just kind of partake of the supper whenever they feel like it. It's a five to ten minute add-on at the end of a service. There's no emphasis placed upon the need to prepare our hearts. God forbid that the minister should fence the table and give warnings for the unbelieving and or unbaptized to not come to the table because that might offend someone. So a little prepackaged thimble of juice with a dry wafer attached to the top is hurriedly distributed to all in attendance. Whether there's any real relationship between them or not, they could be a total stranger that the church knows nothing about. And there's no real explanation given to what they are about to do. And then they will partake of these elements after a few brief words from a pastor. And then they will go out with no real understanding of what they have just assembled to observe. Well, what I just described to you is the way the Lord's Supper is observed in many churches. But what we find in the Bible, and what we find throughout church history, is that the Lord's Supper is not some little trifle uh, that churches just do whenever they want, however they want. It's, it's actually essential to the identity of a New Testament church. I think I've shared this with you before, but if you read church books from church history, you will find statements like this, so-and-so was received into the communion of the church. What, what that means is, uh, to be received into the communion of the church is to be identified with the church. So what is a church? You could say a church is a visible group of baptized believers who regularly partake of the Lord's Supper together. That's what a church is. It's one of the marks of a true church. No ordinances, no church. And it requires a degree of thought and reverence and consideration if it is to accomplish its God-intended purpose. And that purpose is the Lord's Supper as a means of God's grace to promote and preserve our union with Christ and our unity with one another. We are to observe it in remembrance of Him. That's why we take the supper. For Him. For Him. But when we take the supper and make it about us and our preferences and our pleasure, then the supper works to cause our disunity, not our unity. Well, that's, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church. Now, if you've been paying attention thus far in 1 Corinthians, as Paul is addressing all of these different issues, there's a sense in which 1 Corinthians is one of the most broadest books in the Bible. So much is covered in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but if you've been paying attention, you know that the, the real issue is not the issue. What, what do I mean by that? Well, the real issue, as Paul is dealing with all of these different things, is oftentimes a, a deeper problem that the Corinthians have. A thinking, a, an attitude 
that causes these external issues. Remember meat sacrifice to idols? What was the real issue there? The real issue there was a misunderstanding of Christian liberty. Remember head coverings. What was the real issue there? The real issue there was how the created order is to be represented in the church. Well, what's the real issue here when we come to the Lord's Supper? At least in our text, in verses 17 through 22, the real issue was a selfish and divisive attitude that caused them to abuse the supper. It wasn't a theological or really even a practical misunderstanding. It was their heart attitude. And that is what Paul is going to address in our text. So there's the number of things I want you to see. Number one, I want you to see the division reported. The division reported. Look at verse 17. Paul begins and he says this. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. Paul is making a very rigid shift in his approach as he begins to discuss the Lord's Supper. Remember how he started this chapter. He says, I praise you that you keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. And then he spent the first half of this chapter, uh, not, not with a scathing rebuke of the church, he was just providing some more information, some additional clarifications Uh, But now, when he comes to the Lord's Supper, I think this highlights the fact that the Lord's Supper is of great importance, and it also highlights the fact that there were some great abuses of the Supper in the Corinthian church. They had so perverted this ordinance that there's a sense in which Paul comes to verse 17 and he takes the gloves off. And he says to the church, I praise you not. Now that, that phrase, I praise you not, is a figure of speech. It's a, it's a major understatement. Not only is Paul not praising them, what is he doing? He's rebuking them. It's as if you saw some catastrophe and you said, yeah, I'm not going to cheer for that. You're making an understatement. It's not exactly something I would applaud. It's an understatement. Not only is it not something you would applaud, it's something that you are going to condemn and confront and in Paul's case, rebuke. Well, what is it? What is, the, what is going on in the church? Notice... He says that ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now, he's not really started to describe the issue quite yet. He's just giving some introductory remarks here on the severity of the issue. And he says, I don't praise you because when you're coming to church, think about what Paul is saying. When you're coming to church, you're coming to church for the better or for the worse than for the better. What you're doing is so bad Your error is so great that you would be better off if you stayed home and didn't even come to church. That's what Paul just said to them. I shudder to ask this question because I think I know the answer of some of you. But can you imagine a church so unhealthy, so ungodly, so unbiblical that it would be better if they just quit meeting? They're doing more harm to their own souls They're doing more harm to the cause of God and truth. They're doing more harm to uh, unbelievers that may visit. Now, does that mean the church must just disband and cease to meet? Well, not in every situation, certainly not in this situation, but it means that they need to make an immediate correction to whatever this problem is, because until they do, it's actually worse for them to come together. That's how serious this is. This is how severe the problem is in Corinth. You guys are 
better off if you just stayed home and didn't come to church. That's what Paul said in verse 17. Well, okay, Paul, what is causing you to speak with such strong and bold language? Verse 18, for first of all, when ye come together in the church, and I need to stop right there uh, because I need to call your attention back to the fact that this section is, is, is all about the public worship of God in the church. And you're going to find this phrase, when you come together in the church, you're going to find it a number of times in our passage. I think you're going to find it five times in the second half of this chapter alone, and you're going to find it three times just in our verses this morning. When you come together in the church. Well, when Paul says, in the church, he isn't referring to a building. Paul is not saying, when you come together at 204 North Poplar Street in Paris, Tennessee. No, what the church is, is it's a gathering of saints united by profession of faith and covenant. He's saying, when you come together as the church. And by the way, if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand the ordinances. Contrary to what several believe in our day, The ordinances are given to the church, not individuals, not parachurch organizations, not seminaries, not families, not the government, the church. Our confessional statements affirm that as well. In chapter 28, paragraph 1 of the 1689, it says, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver to be continued in his church to the end of the world. Chapter 30, in paragraph 1, the supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches. That's that's even more specific, in his churches. uh, Because it does away with this idea that, well, as long as you have a group of believers together uh, and you're meeting there and you're all members of the, the universal invisible church, you can observe the ordinances. No, it's in his church's plural. There needs to be authority there from a local assembly. The 1833 particular Baptist confession of faith in Article 15 is abundantly clear. It says, we likewise believe that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience in which the members of the church, by the sacred use of bread and wine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ. It is preceded always by solemn self-examination. Worthy partakers of the Lord's Supper do not corporally... What does that mean? Not through your mouth. You don't feed on Christ through your mouth, but spiritually feed upon the benefits of Christ's death through faith. Through faith. You feed upon the benefits of Christ's death as a means of God's grace unto them. Proper observance of the Lord's Supper requires that we partake of it as the assembled church. Now this does not mean that all members must be present, though that is ideal. But it means that we are only to partake of the supper at corporate gatherings of the whole church. It must be a stated gathering where we say... All members are invited and expected, and I I think we can even say scripturally required under ordinary circumstances to come. And if a member uh, refuses to come, does not come, well, that's that's on them. (laughs) But that's not what was going on in Corinth, okay? We'll see that in a minute. But I, I just want to point this out. It's not proper 
to take the Lord's Supper at, say, the monthly men's book and breakfast. It's not proper to take the Lord's Supper at the ladies' fellowship. It's not proper to take the Lord's Supper privately at home. It's not proper for me to go to the nursing home and administer the Lord's Supper to the residents there. Why? Because the very nature of the Supper is a communing of the whole body. The whole body comes to commune. Not only is it improper, it's really not even possible to partake of the Lord's Supper outside of the body. Whatever you're doing, it's not the supper. (laughs) As we'll see, this is something that the Corinthians were just woefully missing. And Paul gets into that later on in the text, but let's keep going here. He says this, the division reported. He says, I hear that there be divisions among you. Well, where would Paul have heard this? Do you remember chapter 1 and verses 10 and 11? Look at chapter 1 and verses 10 and 11. It's just a few pages back. This will explain so much to you about what is going on in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Much of 1 Corinthians is framed by this letter that was sent to Paul by members of Chloe's household in which he was informed of divisions in the church. We know that this is a church that is plagued by a factious and divisive spirit that is pitting the members of the church against one another. And when the church loses its unity, when divisions begin to creep into the church, other problems will always and inevitably follow. But when a church has unity, when they are on the, of the same mind, when they, when they are uh, of the mindset of, I'm going to think of others before myself, I'm not going to seek the preeminence, I'm going to prefer my brother. Well, then when issues come up, decisions come up, even if members don't necessarily agree on every fine point, because they have this overall spirit of unity, which only God can give, and which I pray He continues to give to this church, when those things come up, the church is able to to persevere through them. But when a church doesn't have this spirit of unity, something as simple as what color should we paint the walls in the vestibule will split a church. In chapter 1, the divisions primarily had to do with preferring one preacher above another. Paul will spend several chapters talking about uh, different factions in the church that preferred Paul or preferred Apollos. But in chapter 11, the divisions are between the rich and poor members of the church. Again, it's this pervading spirit. It's not the issue itself. Because if you have a divisive spirit, you'll find plenty of things to divide over. Maybe it's preachers, maybe it's your your bank accounts, maybe it's your Bible translations, your eschatology, silly preferences about dress or decorations. In this case, in chapter 11... This divisive spirit has pit the rich and the poor members at odds with one another. 
We see that very clearly in the text, especially when Paul gets to the end of it. And then Paul says this, quite interesting. He says, I hear there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Well, some commentators say that Paul is is being nice here, and he's giving the Corinthians the benefit of the doubt, kind of as if if he's saying, well, I've heard one side of the story, uh, but I'm going to withhold my judgment because I don't know for sure if it's true. I partly believe it. But what's far more fitting with the text and with the context of the passage is uh, that this is a classic example of Pauline sarcasm found all throughout 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul hears of the divisions and he, he, he basically says, oh, I'm, I'm so shocked. The Corinthians? No, not them. They would never be divided, right? They're the Corinthians. Paul says, I, you know, I partly believe it. The truth is that Paul had no trouble believing these reports because this is a church that, that has a history of struggles with divisions in the body. In fact, he might, he might be using this sarcasm here because he's having to address another issue that relates back to their problem with divisions in the body. Well, then Paul comes to verse 19... And he interjects an aside. You know what I mean by that? A parenthetical thought. That's what verse 19 is. Paul is commenting in general on divisions and schisms in the church before he continues the conversation in verse 20. We do that all the time in our conversations. Have you ever been telling a story to someone and you're telling the story and then you you pause in the middle of your story to comment on your story and then you keep telling your story? That's what Paul's doing. And you need to read verse 19 that way. So he says, I hear that there's these divisions among you. Now let me say something in general about divisions. And so we see the division reported. But in verse 19, I want you to see the divine reason. The divine reason. Because Paul's going to make a general statement about the nature of divisions in the church and why they're in the church. And if you you read this verse and you don't sit there and scratch your head and say, what do you mean, Paul? Then you're probably not really reading this verse. Because he makes a a really profound statement. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says, For there must be also heresies among you. What did you just say, Paul? There must be heresies among you? Well, well, I thought, Paul, I thought you wanted us to be united. I I thought, Paul, that you wanted us to, to put away our divisions. What do you mean there must be? Now, I think that there's some churches that have taken this in a a, a woodenly literal sense and they've gone out of their way to pursue division. Now, this is the life verse of many a church. (laughs) Paul is not uh, giving here a, a prescriptive statement. He's not saying that you should pursue division. He's making a statement about the nature of the church. There must be. Before I explain to you what what Paul's doing here, let me point out just a a translational fact. The word that the King James translates as heresies is a word that literally means factions or sects. If there's any theological term that's misunderstood and misused in our day, it's the H word. Heresy. But what this verse does is it actually gives us the true definition of heresy. Heresy. See, a heresy 
is a doctrine or a teaching that goes against what the church has declared to be orthodox. A heresy is not just something you disagree with. Therefore, a heretic, in the proper sense of the word, is someone who causes division by promoting something contrary to what has been received as true by the church. That's what a heretic is. Titus 3.10 tells us, a man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. Well, today, there are many individual Christians who want to slap the heresy label on anything they disagree with. But we need to understand this. No one individual has the authority to designate anything as heresy. No one individual has that authority. It is a designation that can only be given by the church throughout the history of its creeds and councils. I can say that Unitarianism, for instance. What is Unitarianism? A denial of the Trinity. I can say that is heresy. Why? Because throughout the centuries of church history, churches have met more than once and they have written creeds and councils in which they have declared that if you deny the Trinity, you are rejecting the the truth of the gospel of the word of God. I can stand before you and I can say that Arianism, what is that? A denial of the deity and divinity of Christ. I can say to you that is heresy. Why? Because the church has met and they've stamped out creeds and confessions in which they have said scripture teaches Jesus Christ is the son of God. Now, my my weird uncle that has some funny views of the Bible, I can't just say he's a heretic. Unless of course he's repeating a variation of one of the heresies of the church. Or one of the heresies of the, that the church has stamped out as heresy. So I just want to say that to you uh, because we need to be careful about who we and who we don't refer to and what doctrines we do and don't refer to and label as heresies. But when someone comes into the church and they seek to uh, promote and they seek to teach and they seek to advance doctrines that subvert the unity of the church because they are an assault on the truth of what the church has received as orthodox, they are engaging in heresy. They're a heretic. Most modern versions will simply say here in verse 19 that there must be divisions among you or there must be sects among you. But I'm glad that the King James uses this word. It's a different word in the Greek. It's a unique word. So it's not just the same word Paul uses elsewhere when he talks about divisions and sex. Even though it is a bit antiquated, it gives us this idea, it explains to us that the point is not just that there are divisions, but it's that these divisions are caused by attitudes that undermine the unity and purity of the church. But what Paul does mean, or what does he mean, when he says that these heresies must be in the church. Surely Paul is not saying that it's a good thing or or a goal that we should strive after. The real question is this. Must there be heresies in the church because of human inevitability or divine necessity? Is he saying that divisions are just the unavoidable consequence of a church comprised of sinners... Or is he saying that these divisions are part of God's 
all-encompassing decree. That's big boy theology. Well, the second half of the verse reveals to us that the reason why there are divisions in the church is not just because of our faults as humans, but because God in His sovereignty wills them to come to pass. Why? Why? Well, verse 19, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. God in His providence permits divisions in the church to try His people and manifest those who are true and genuine. Church fights bring out the best of the best and the worst of the worst. Disagreements in the church have a way of sorting out those who are truly committed and those who are not. In the church, there are some who are here out of conviction and there are some who are here out of convenience. And in His wisdom, God uses trials and divisions in a local church to test and prove the authenticity of our faith. The picture here is that of elements being purified in a furnace. The fire of factions and division reveal our true colors. How many times do we see this play out? Someone comes into the church brimming with excitement. They're so happy to be here. They're gung-ho until the first time they hear something they don't like. Until the first time that, that their commitment to Christ and their commitment to the church might actually cost them something. Well, if you're really committed to the church and the truth it stands for, then you'll remain faithful so long as the church continues to stand for that truth. But if you're committed to individuals in the church, or maybe just the romanticized idea of the church, well, then you'll get mad and you'll leave at the first opportunity that you have. This, by the way, is why many churches are afraid to practice real church discipline. Because they know that if they do the biblical thing and confront the person in sin, all their friends are going to leave with them. It's just the reality. That's what so often happens. And so many churches find it easier just to turn a blind eye to sin in the church rather than face the casualties. And God, is not only does He use trials and division to purify His churches, He does it in our own personal Christian lives, doesn't He? James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When, when you have hardship in your life, division, when you're put at a crossroads... Maybe you're at odds with, with someone you once considered to be a dearest a friend and you now have to choose, do I, do I follow Christ and the truth of His Word or do I follow this friendship? And what you find is that when you choose Christ, in, this, in, in that sense of, the, of the, the expression there, when you follow Him, what happens? Your faith is strengthened. Does He not try and purify our marriages in that same way? When God sends a division... In our marriage, something that pits the husband against the wife. And there's, there's this reality here that there's something that's assaulting the family. And, and, and in many cases, that same division might, might uh, end in divorce 
in families that are not preserved by the grace of God, but what you find is when you say, yes, we have this division, yes, we're at odds, yes, there's sin, uh, but we are committed to one another because we have vowed to one another. Well, what happens when you preserve, when you fight for your marriage? Well, God strengthens the bond. He uses that division, He uses that disunity to strengthen you two, and you're stronger, your marriage is stronger than it was before the division came. It's the same thing for churches. The vision comes up in the church. A problem comes up in the church. There's hurt and heartache in the church. But members dig in and they say, we have covenanted to be a local New Testament church. We are a family. We are a body. We love one another. We're going to keep worshiping and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. God uses division to strengthen His body. When we see division and contention in the body, we can take courage in knowing that God is able to use even this to purify and cleanse His church. Because the hard truth is this. If someone is in the church for any other reason than a love for Christ, a love for His truth, and a love for His people, then God using division and schism to remove them is actually for our good. And we don't see that at first. We just, we just see it as losing a loved one. <laughs> On the other hand, we do see the blessings. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? The providence of God, as John Flavel said, is like Hebrew. You only understand it when you read it backwards. Many of the church's greatest gifts, greatest pastors, greatest theologians, greatest preachers have been forged in the fires of division. Think about this. If the Corinthians didn't have this division, we wouldn't have this chapter. The most exhaustive and really the only complete teaching on the Lord's Supper in the entire Bible. Have you ever thought about this? As Reformed Christians, we celebrate the greatest split in the history of the church. What do we celebrate? We celebrate... The day a, a Augustinian monk went to the church and caused division and nailed 95 theses on the door. That also tells us something about the nature of church splits and church schisms. That oftentimes it's not two equally Christian parties that God is splitting up and causing division amongst. No, but He uses division oftentimes to bring His true people out of error and out of an apostate organization and body. The Reformation was not a, a schism between two equally Christian parties who went their separate ways over personal issues. It was a division that God ordained to come to pass so that those who were approved, those who possessed genuine, authentic Christianity could be approved. Well, our chief prayer is that God would spare us from division. But when it comes, because it will. Okay? What did Jesus say? In the world, you will have tribulation. Okay, well, in the church, you will have division. When it comes, because it will, may God uphold us and sustain us in His faithfulness to Him and His truth. And in so doing... God purifies His people and purges out those who are heretics in the truest sense of the word. Well, this is 
This is the divine reason. It's an aside. It doesn't have necessarily immediate implication to the Lord's Supper. But finally, let us look thirdly at the described reality in verses 20 and 21. And by the way, let me just say this to you. Uh, It's going to take me a number of Sundays to get through the remainder of this text. And I'm in no rush to do so because I really want these truths about the Supper to be ingrained in us. So you might be thinking... Uh, Pastor, you have you've hardly mentioned the supper. I, I know that. I know that. This is all introductory information that you need to know before we can get into the meat of Paul's teachings on the supper. But let's look now at the described reality in verse twenty. Paul's given us this parenthetical thought on God's purpose in church schism, but now he returns to the situation at hand with the Corinthians. So, what are they actually doing? How is this division manifesting itself? Verse twenty. He says this. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, there it is again, coming together in one place. He says, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. This is not to eat the Lord's Supper. First time, by the way, that we actually see the phrase Lord's Supper. And the grammatical structure is very unique. This form of Lord's is a possessive noun that is only used of one other thing in the whole Bible. And that is in Revelation 1 and verse 10 when he talks about the Lord's day. So what we find is that the Lord has a supper and he has a day. But when the Corinthians come together in the Lord's church on the Lord's day, they were not coming to observe the Lord's supper. Paul says, you're not coming to eat the Lord's supper. What are you doing, verse 21? For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. Well, let me give you some historical context uh, so that you can understand what Paul is saying here. In the early church, they partook of the supper, they observed the supper in a different way than we do. They partook of the Lord's Supper as a sacred part of a full meal. Uh, So the Lord's Supper was its own event, and they would meet together as the church, and they would bring food to share with one another, They would have a fellowship meal. They they called them love feasts. And in the midst of the meal, as the church is sitting around and they're eating and they're sharing their food with one another, in the midst of the meal, the minister would stand up and he would call the church to worship and he would administer the supper in the same way that Jesus instituted the supper in the midst of the Passover meal in the upper room. Now, we're not unbiblical for observing the Lord's Supper in a different way. We don't observe it as part of a meal, uh, but the meal, you understand, is the circumstance. The actual element is the bread and the wine used in the supper itself. But here's what was going on in the Corinthian church. The more wealthy members of the church were bringing their food, they were getting there early, and they were huddling up in the corner, and they were scarfing down their food, and they were not waiting for the poorer members of the church. Instead of waiting for them, they stuffed themselves, and the Bible says they even got drunk. And when the rest of the church arrived, there was no food left. Not only was there no food left, but the wealthy members were, were sitting full of food and intoxicated. You say, well, why did the poor members come later? Well... Because the church, almost certainly in the early church, met in the evenings. And the poor members of the church, this is not in in any way, shape, or form a Christian society. You have to remember that. 
And these poor members of the church would have been working hard, manual labor type jobs. Many of them were no doubt slaves who would get there when they could. And they did not have the funds to afford food to bring to the meal. Well, what does the Bible tell us to do in such a, such a situation? Well, we're to care for our brothers and sisters. No one is to be... If someone were a member of our church and, and said to us, well, I'm not coming to the fellowship because I don't, I, I'm, my budget's really tight. I don't have money to buy food to bring to the fellowship. We would say, well, brother, sister, come. We have plenty. We have plenty. But see, this was not like it was in our day where they could just say, we'll meet at 6.30 and they send out an email and everybody just gets there at 6.30. And by the way, even if we send out an email telling everybody to come at 6.30, inevitably there are people who don't get here at 6.30. There must be heresies among us, right? Amen. But just imagine, I want you to put yourself in the mindset And take on the perception of one of these poor members in the Corinthian church. You've worked all day. You're tired. You're dirty. You really don't smell that pleasant. And you've been working all day and you've been looking forward to, you've been saying, today the church is meeting this evening and we're going to have a love feast and we're going to take the supper, and, and I am a new Christian. This, this Messiah has, has just, just a few decades ago had his ministry in Jerusalem, and he died on a cross, and this man named Paul has come, and he's preached the gospel, and I believed in him. And Paul said that even though I am a poor Greek slave, I can have eternal life, and so I've, I've been baptized, and I've joined myself to this church, and I'm working hard, and I'm going to go and meet with the church tonight, and I'm going to experience the love and the charity of my brothers and sisters, and we're going to partake of a meal together, and then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And I, I, I can't afford to bring anything, but, but I know that they will have something for me when I get there. Because that's one of the greatest ethics of Christianity. That we share with one another. We care for one another. But imagine how you would feel when you come to church and you see your fellow church members wealthy church members off in a corner somewhere indulging carrying on without you intoxicated without so much as even thinking about you they didn't save you anything to eat they they didn't care for you at all they didn't even think about you they only thought about themselves In that moment, you're probably not going to feel the love of Christ coming from your brothers and sisters, are you? Their behavior isn't very loving, is it? It's not exactly the kind of selfless actions that produce unity in the church, is it? By this, the world will know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. They're not really displaying that, are they? Here you are just trying to enjoy some Christian fellowship while other members of your church are off in the corner huddled around their crockpots with more concern for their own bellies than for you. In, in verse 24 of chapter 10, Paul told the Corinthians to care for others before themselves. But what does he say here in chapter 11? They're doing precisely the opposite. They're caring for themselves above each other. 
This is what's going on. This is the described reality in the Corinthian church. I hope you see, as I've tried to illustrate this setting for you, I hope you see just how wicked, just how problematic the situation here is in Corinth. And so fourthly, I want you to see the delivered rebuke in verse 22. Paul says, what? This is just a word of shock. He hears of how these members are treating each other. And he, he can't, it's like he can't believe it. What? He says, have you not houses to eat and drink in? If you want to stuff your face and drink some wine with your buddies, do that at home, Paul says. Look, if you, if you are a wealthy person, by America's standard, most of us in this room are wealthy people, and you want to enjoy some of that wealth, have at it, Paul says, basically. But don't come to the church and flaunt your wealth and abuse your, your blessings at the expense of your brothers and sisters that don't have it. When we come to the church, it's not this show. Church is not a talent show. Church is not show and tell. Church is not the country club. Don't come together and sit around with your rich buddies and hobnob. No care for the poor members of the church. We come here to do God's business. To carry out His commands. Not for our own entertainment and social fun. Just think of all the divisions and schisms that we would avoid if we all just came to church for the same reason. See, if I come to church to worship Jesus and you come to church to worship Jesus, then for the most part, we'll be on the same page. And because I came to church to worship Jesus, if you said something in conversation that I didn't really like, it's not going to bother me because I'm here to worship Jesus. And if you came to church to worship Jesus and I did something that offended you, you're not really going to make a big deal about it. It's not really going to hinder your worship because you came here to worship Jesus. But if you're here to build your own little kingdom, and I'm here to build my own little kingdom, then we're coming to church for two totally different reasons. And the worship of Jesus and fellowship with His people takes a backseat to the reason we're actually here, our own greedy, selfish desires for preeminence. That's what's going on in the Corinthian church. These wealthy church members, they're not coming to worship Jesus and partake of the supper. They're coming to enjoy fellowship with the other rich members of the church. And then Paul says this, turning up the rebuke a notch. He says, or despise ye the church of God. The, the Corinthians had no idea how serious their sin was. We oftentimes have no idea just how serious our sin is. Paul, what's the harm? I mean, you know, okay, so we got there early and we, 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 we ate and we forgot to leave some food for other church members. Yeah, I mean, we, we drank wine, got drunk at the Lord's Supper. Paul says, you're despising the church. Now, they weren't walking around chanting, I hate the church, I hate the church. But you must understand, when you pervert the church and you make it about you and yourself, you are despising the church of God. When preachers make the church all about them and their personality, 
they're despising the church of God. When members make the church all about them and their preferences, they're despising the church of God. The church is to be one body characterized by unity. And when you engage in behavior that promotes factions and divisions, you are despising the church. And the best thing, the best thing that could happen to you and the church is for you to be put out of it. In Proverbs 6, God tells us six things that he hates. I hate these things, God says. And in verse 9, verse 19, one of them is a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. You want to incur the anger of God and the wrath of God against you? Then engage in behavior that promotes division in the church. Gossip, lies, selfishness. The list could go on and on. I hope you see, brothers and sisters, how serious and how wicked divisive behavior is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says this. He's he's, really, it's a three-pronged rebuke. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Look, if you want to have a dinner party, you have full, complete sovereignty to invite whoever you want. We don't have any right to invite anyone to the table. All we get to do is proclaim who the Lord has invited to the table. He says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? And and do you despise the church? And then he says this. And shame them that have not. What does he mean there? He says, don't you understand that your behavior is bringing shame and it is embarrassing the poor members of the body? See, the beautiful thing about the Lord's Supper is this. There is total equality when we come to the table. When we come to the Lord's table... It doesn't matter what your salary is. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how long you've been saved. It doesn't matter how much theology you know. The only thing that matters when you come to the Lord's table is that you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've covenanted together with each other. It's the only thing that matters. But this beautiful and glorious truth is lost when we behave like the Corinthians. When we make the supper about us, it becomes absolutely meaningless. So Paul says, what shall I say to you? Have you ever been here before? (laughs) With your spouse? Maybe with your kids? I don't even know what to say to you right now, Paul says. I have no words. Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. I praise you not. Now in the next section, Paul is going to correct their behavior and he's going to show them the proper way of observing the Lord's Supper. But I want this rebuke to sink in. Thankfully, by God's grace, This church is not following in the same Corinthian error when we come to the Lord's table, okay? 
But that doesn't mean that we don't need to be reminded of the danger and the sin of divisive body or divisive behavior in the body. There was a time in which I followed after a mindset and an, and an attitude uh, that would have been very well accepted in the Corinthian church. This idea of, well, doesn't really matter what my tone is. doesn't really matter how I come across. As long as it's true. And if you're offended, that's your problem. You know what that is? Immaturity. Worldliness. Fleshly carnality. Because the, the truth of the matter is, even if what I'm saying is true, but I'm saying it in such a way that shows no love for my brothers and sisters, and that needlessly offends them, if we're going to offend with the Word of God, and we will offend with the Word of God, that's one thing. But we don't need to add to it. We don't need to act. You know, maybe the wealthy members of the church had an argument. Maybe they could have said, you know, these people, some of them really, they could afford to bring something to the fellowship meal. They could try a little harder to get here on time. Maybe they had an argument. But the solution is not to do something that just shames them and embarrasses them. The Lord's Supper... It's not just something that must be done in unity. It's something that God gives us to preserve our unity. Because every time we come to the table, we are forced to think about the reality that we are one body. What do you think about when you come to the Lord's Supper? Well, first and foremost, you should be thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. The blood that He shed to redeem sinners. But it is also right to think about the fellowship that we have with one another. When we observe the supper, when you hold that little piece of bread in your hand, are you saying, I'm so glad to be a part of the family of God. I'm so thankful to be a member of this church. I'm so thankful for my brothers and sisters in Christ who love me and care for me. We are one body. We're united by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for this reason that I always say, please wait until everyone is served so that we can remember that we are all one body. So as we come to the table, which we'll do in just a few moments, may communion not just be something we do, but may it be something we have in spirit and in truth as we love, serve, and worship the Lord together. Father, I thank you for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the ordinances that you've given to the church. And especially today for the Lord's Supper. May you use the Supper to preserve our unity. And Father, if there is anything within me, any sinful, divisive, pattern of thinking that would cause me to offend, that would cause me to embarrass, that would cause me to despise the church. May you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make it known to me. Stomp it out of me. 
Father, that I might be able to come to this table and to relish in my union with Christ and my unity with my brothers and sisters. Preserve this church in unity. Deepen our fellowship. Deepen our love one for another. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.